So it's common for people to look back at their childhoods or teenage years and wish they could go back in time and relive them. I'm definitely not one of those people. I grew up feeling like no one cared about me and didn't understand why I was put on the earth, but I only realized that I had depression when I hit rock bottom in 2003. When I was in grade seven, my dad introduced me to a running group that he discovered in our neighborhood. Although when I was a teen, he ended up getting too involved and I eventually quit the sport. I discovered a sense of belonging for the first time and came back to the sport in 2004. Of course, I still struggled with mental health because it would be too easy if lacing up my running shoes would solve all my problems. But I had found a coping mechanism that was not so self-destructive. And our guest today discovered running earlier than I did, had run distances I can't even wrap my head around, and also found it helpful when she was dealing with mental health struggles of her own. Hi, and welcome to the Running Book Reviews podcast, where we review running books to help you decide if you like to read the book for yourself. We also hope that listening to us chat about running can help keep you motivated about your own running or maybe even inspire you to try something new. So my name is Liz and my co-host Alan and I are going to speak with author Katie Arnold about her book, Running Home. Katie's book, Running Home, is mostly a memoir about Katie's life as a child of divorced parents. Feeling like she always needed to be maybe a good girl and seeking approval from her father, and then later becoming a wife and a mother herself. Katie deals with uh, a lot of issues, notably anxiety and grief after the death of her father. She uses ultra trail running to help deal with them. Although us runners would like to call this a running book, I kind of feel the stories more than just about running. And I think many people will relate to the thoughts and feelings that Katie describes in the book. In fact, if you've ever been a parent, then this book could well be interesting for you. And in fact, if you've ever been a child, which would be most of us, then uh, this book was also relevant to you. So let me tell you about a little bit about Katie Arnold. Uh, she's a contributing editor and and former managing editor at Outside Magazine, where she worked on the staff for 12 years. The stories have appeared in all the famous places like the New York Times, uh, Men's Journal, ESPN Magazine, Marie Claire, Runner's World, etc., etc., etc. She's been nominated also as a writer for a number of awards. I won't go into the awards because I don't know much about writing awards. Um, I'll skip to that and go to the running awards. In running, Katie is the 2018 Women's Champion of the Leadville Trail 100, very famous run. And in fact, she finished 11th overall in a field of more than 700 runners in that race. She's also won a whole slew of, of ultra races, um, notably 2018 Gemma's Mountain 50 miler, the 2014 Trans Rockies three day runs also in uh, Mount Taylor and other areas of New Mexico in particular. She's the two-time overall champion and course record holder at the Angel Fire 100K. Katie's a sponsored athlete by Goo Energy Labs and and, and various other sponsors. Um, It's a good thing I think she has Goo sponsorship because judging from the book, she seems to use an awful lot of it. It's always sticky on her runs, it seems. Um, We'll find out more about that soon. 
As part of her ongoing effort to encourage young athletes, she's founded a children's trail running club, gives motivational talks, coaches girls lacrosse in Santa Fe. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. What a great intro. I'm really happy to be with you today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I can't take credit for that. Although um, I read the intro, um, Liz actually <laughs> wrote the intro, so it was a, it was a, it was a double team. I appreciate it. Team effort. Uh, the usual kickoff for, on these kind of things. Great to have you here. And um, we, wrote through, we read through the book and have a record number of questions. So I hope we can get through it. But the standard kickoff question is, you know, what made you decide to write this book? Oh, yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, um, I've been a writer, as you, as you mentioned, for my whole career. And um, long before that, I always knew I would be a writer from about the same age, not coincidentally, that I started running. And so I've always seen the world as a writer sees the world, as a storyteller and trying to capture the details and um, the essence of an experience. And so when my father died in 2010, and I was sort of plunged into this very profound grief experience, my natural tendency was to write about it and to sort of try to capture it all and to see it and to understand it. And I didn't have any idea that I would write the book then. It was not a premeditated thing. As some writers probably do, they think, oh, this is gonna, this will make a great book. I was too deep into the fog of grief and um, mourning my father, um, who was so influential in my life and with whom I was so close that um, I was just grieving. And so it really wasn't until about three years after he died, and you, you alluded to this period of anxiety that I went through after he died died where I was sure I was dying too. And running was really the only thing that helped me sort of move through that grief. It was probably like three years after he died that I was able to have enough distance on his death and kind of what I'd been experiencing as a runner and running through my grief that I realized that all the things I'd been writing down, you know, during his short illness in the aftermath of his death. And then as I began to run longer and longer distances, everything I'd been writing in my notebooks that were just for me at the time, I realized I'd been writing this book and that it started to take shape in my mind and I saw the narrative, but it, but it was, you know, it required lots of patience and willingness to be in that unknown state of, you know, literally just one foot in front of the other. And so it was sort of magical then when I got on the other side and I saw that everything I'd been doing very wholeheartedly writing and keeping notes of how I was feeling what would be for something after all. And, and when I saw that, I really wanted the motivation was to try to tell the story of my relationship with my father. And though it was complicated and I was parented by him over distance and there were many things about him after he died that I learned about him that were painful all that said, to try to understand his influence on me and who he had been as a person and, and also who I was becoming as both a mother of my own two children and as an athlete and as his daughter and also as a writer. It's, you know, as much as it's a coming of age story of running, it's also a coming of age story as a writer. And so all of those um, just sort of fed into this desire to write the story as I'd been living it. Did you have a, did you have a lot of um, notes that you took in that case 
that you just wrote for yourself that didn't find their way into the book? I mean, it seems to me that that's, it's, an exceed, it's an exceedingly sort of personal thing. I was reading the book and thinking, if I had to write a book like this, I don't think I could bring myself to write such personal things into the book. You know, um, running is a very public thing. You go out, mm -hmm. people see you doing it. But grieving is a very private thing. Did, did you write a lot of things that were just too painful and you couldn't share them in the book? That's so interesting what you said that running is a public thing, because for me, and I think this is why I was able to go so deep in the book into my own story, is that running for me has always been a very personal expression. And it's really not for me about the competition. Only in recent years has competition become more central to why and how I run, but it's still like just the tip of the iceberg. And so for me, because I've had this lifelong relationship with running as an expression of who I am and how I am in the world and as a writer because running is very much part of my creative process and how I write. Running has always felt like this personal joy that I have and I think because when I run it's enables me to go and understand my mind more when I run right as runners we have a lot of time on our hands when we're running to sort of follow our minds and study our minds really um, so I, I spent a lot of time with my mind and, and especially after my father died trying to understand why my grief was taking such an extreme form of, of anxiety and just a real sort of obsession with the fact that I was going to die and I, and I thought that it was imminent it was also that I had a new new born baby she was three months old so there was definitely a dose of you know postpartum thrown in there no question but as to did I not reveal things in the book that were in my notebooks I mean I keep I fill notebooks all the time I do about a, one a month and the notebooks are just for me they don't have to be for anything though I write everything in them so they're pieces of stories and fiction ideas that I have and interviews like if I'm interviewing someone I'll just transcribe it into my notebook so there's sort of this catch-all um, but as for the material that went in the book there were some things that I didn't put in that I deliberately withheld and and sort of tried to exercise some restraint but um, as you can probably tell from writing the book I'm just an open book really I'm, I'm a very open person and um, I didn't have a lot of hesitation um, about sharing. It felt very natural. And I think because as a journalist, I've written many in-depth profiles of people. And as a journalist, you want to get to those stories that reveal the essence of someone. So I thought that, and I never even really thought this, it was just a feeling that if I was going to write the book, I wanted to get to the essence of my experience and not hold back, that there wouldn't really be a point in writing a book that skimmed along on the surface. Yeah, I think, um, I think, you know, it's, it's all, you know, the emotion and it's things that uh, are actually quite common because, you know, things like postpartum depression are common, even depression is common, anxiety is common. I mean, if you put out the word, like, you'd be surprised how many people in your own um, circle have dealt with some of those feelings. So yeah, but I, I understand 
both sides, like it seems like we sort of, it's almost like we suffer in silence. Um, but maybe once everything is over, it's a little easier to share because like you understand what happened and then, you know, you had time to think about it and then you can kind of share it. I don't know if that was sort of like, you know, you had to maybe go through that process prior to that, but um, yeah, I think you, I think you do. I think there's a lot of processing that happens. I certainly, I feel that I did the processing before I started writing the book as a whole, because I did wait so long. And again, not intentionally, I wasn't saying like, I need to wait to write the book. I didn't know I was writing the book. It was very organic. So I trusted that. And the, the book or the story I felt from the beginning, once I realized it was a book, very much had its own energy, that it was coming out of me as this story that I feel on, on a deeper level I was meant to tell. And so from the get-go, my sense was that I just needed to like bring it into the world. Like it was its own thing and I was in service of the story or the book and I needed to help it come in. But um, the story had its own energy and integrity, I think, from the, from the start. And I certainly hope that, you know, people who read it might find it useful if they're going through their own grief or anxiety. Um, as you mentioned, which are so common and so many of us do, I think there's a lot that I learned in here that might be helpful to others, but that initially wasn't the impetus for writing it. Um, it was just more that I felt like this energy inside of me of this book that wanted to come into the world. And, and I sort of trust that the book will find its way and do the work it's meant to do. Let's start by talking about the book. You really start the story. I mean, you kind of started at the beginning and um, I guess in the present. So like the first chapters are very much, uh, you know, describing your childhood and um, that you were a child of two parents who separated when you were very young. Kind of wondering, like, did you did you blame yourself for that separation? Yeah, that's that sort of the the seeds of everything that would follow is that sense of fracture in my family. And it happened when I was very, very young. So as I write in the book before I even, I, I don't even really have memories of my father living at home. And so his absence always had this sort of outsized presence in my life. And it was very mysterious to me. I mean, this was the seventies. And so as I write, you know, like no one told kids anything back then about what was happening or why and it, you know by no fault of my parents that's just the way it happened back then and and so there was a lot of um just sort of a feeling of mystery to me as to like why my family didn't look like others and then you know when we did um, my mother remarried and we moved to new jersey from washington like why I moved and all of a sudden I had a new father and some new siblings and my father had been left behind. And that was really this sort of great kind of trauma in my life is like not knowing why we had left my father. And then really what followed is me as a kid trying to make sense of it and solve that mystery. And I think in many ways that really shaped my desire to be a writer was to kind of try to get to the bottom of that and look around for clues. I was, like I said, I was a big reader and I was, I really wanted to be a writer from early on. And I think that was part of it was trying to figure out like what had happened and was it 
partially my fault. There was so much unspoken, right? And we know that kids pick up on that. that like I have two girls and they're just little sponges and we think that they're not paying attention, but they really are and they're absorbing it. So I, I was absorbing this unease and this sense that there was something that had happened that I didn't know about. And I um, wanted to figure it out. And then it's a natural, I think, reaction when you're that young to, to blame yourself right? Or to think that it's somehow connected to something you did. So those were very much early themes um, and very shaping, you know, very, very much shaped who I am as a writer and also kind of who I am as an athlete and a person who really loves and is most at home outside and has always had a relationship with the natural world in part because it was the safe place, right? If inside the home, both homes, and I was going back and forth between two families, was complicated, nothing, you know, it was safe, both places were safe and I had loving parents in both, but there were complications that you don't understand and you just feel, and so very naturally, outside. I was most comfortable outside playing in the woods, you know, at my dad's farm in the fields. And so that um, has really shaped who I am as an outdoor athlete and just always wanting and seeking solace in wild places. And um, your sister, because your sister is like not that much older than you from what it sounds like. It's like, so she's maybe only a couple of years, I think. Yeah. Two and a half years. Yeah. But I, when you were little, I, that makes a big difference. Right. So I was wondering, did she like, cause you guys seem close, but did you ever talk about the separation together when you were kids? Not now. Cause uh, like, I know later in the book, you mentioned that you, yeah. know, you, you talk about it, but, and you do a lot of things together. But when you were kids, like, did you guys both sort of live this experience on your own? Like, did you talk about it or what? Yeah, gosh, that's a great question. I have not been asked that before, but I would have to say, no, we really didn't. It's sort of that when you find yourself in this Chaotic's too strong a word because it, we had very stable families in both. But when you find yourself in this very new and unsettling circumstance, one tendency would be to be like, oh my God, what is going on? But I think because we were so young, we were both thrust into this together. Um, and yet we didn't, I think we just, the, idea, the feeling was we sort of had to just make do on our own. And um, our sisterhood was strengthened and kind of formed really on those trips back and forth from New Jersey where we lived with our mother to Washington DC where my father worked at National Geographic and we would my mother at the time we were six and eight she put us on the Amtrak unaccompanied you know to ride for three hours she now like when she hears me retell that story she just shudders like she can't believe that she did that but it was a different time and so we were alone together and so we really had this bond but it was not like we didn't overtly discuss like what do you know it was more like we had to stick together because if we didn't we would miss our stop on the Amtrak and like we would you know be off to destinations unknown and so it, it really forged a bond between us but it was um it wasn't discussed and that's part of it like our family really and I think many families back then a lot was unspoken. And my sister and I, I think, just imitated what our parents did, which we, we didn't talk about unpleasant things. We just kind of sweep it away. And so we just, mod, you know, we imitated that. 
you talked about being outdoors and finding the outdoors as being the obvious compromise or the obvious um, way of getting around being indoors in a suboptimal way in all sorts of places. Reading the book, it sounded like your your dad sort of encouraged your venture spirit. You know, la- launching uh, into the lake yeah. was one little story which was fantastic to read. But later, later we kind of find out that he was a, he was a little bit sort of conflicted himself with with commitment in terms of you know pursuing all in his photography with National Geographic, and maybe he was a little afraid to commit. And uh, part of the stories almost suggests maybe you can confirm or otherwise, that he seemed afraid to commit to you guys as a family when you were young. Um, mm-hmm. And that was part of oh, what's put the, the family up. So was was he living vicariously through you, getting you to do all these outdoorsy things? No, that was very much him. I mean, he, as a photographer for National Geographic, which he did his whole career, he was always out in the world. He had this great, what I describe in the book as like a hunger to experience life and to see and to sort of be an observer and so he would would you know went through the world as you would expect a photographer all you know his eyes always open looking for those moments that so many of us miss and his way to do that was to go literally to go out into the world and so he always went and as as i write in the book like he always had multiple cameras around his neck and like we are always stopping for photographs and so being outside and and being in the world that way was his way of loving the world and seeing it and so that came very naturally and and he also was not an athlete you know like as a runner he was not a he wasn't an athlete he was more of an explorer and so he you know his influence on me was that we would go on long hikes or he would plan river trips or bicycle trips and those were like explorations rather than feats or um, races or, you know, it was just a way of seeing more of the world and like gathering it all up. So he really gave me that, taught me about sort of observation and, and the power of observation and the power of really living your life. That was absolutely true to who he was and has become how I live. Like, I think that's partly why I took all those notes when he was dying. It was like, that's what he had kind of taught me to do is get it all down. Um, But as far as his conflicts with his own creative process and photography, yes, he definitely struggled with that. And much of it was unspoken. And it was more this feeling that you would get from him um, that he wished he'd done more with his photographs. And he was immensely talented. um, And but sort of midway through his career he shifted more to like editing and assigning stories and kind of helping and he was a great mentor to many photographers many famous photographers who you know revered his work but he he kind of put others work ahead of his own and that was a loss that you felt um and that i felt from him and that he was conflicted over Um, and i think the same was true with his family life and I won't go into it because, you know, part of it is I don't want to ruin it for the readers, but like he had felt that it was, he had trouble pursuing both, right? When we were very young, he was conflicted over being a father and being a creative person. And he thought he had to choose. And so he chose his photography and his, his sort of wanderlust. And 
you know, I won't say more, but that is a recurring theme for me in the book in terms of me being a writer and a mother and how can I hold both at the same time. And so running really taught me how I can go away and run and have that freedom that I crave and that kind of expression that we talked about, but then come home at the end. And so that I could, running is what my way of staying in a way. Um, so yeah, that's a big theme in the book is sort of how we wrestle with those roles that we play. Yeah, I think a, a clear observation I would make is that during the book, you can't really give anything away because you have to read the book to get the sense of it. There's contradictions and complexities in various relationships and, and development of various relationships. And your telling of the story and the way in which you do it, the way in which you cut from childhood to present day and backwards and through the conflict, I think is uh, makes the, the, the book a piece of literature rather than a running book. Um, oh. So um, I congratulate you for that. You clearly have a, a, a writing skill. You're not just, well, here I am out for the jog and, oh, it was tough. And, oh, I managed to win the race, which is downplaying a little bit what we like to read sometimes. You know, you get a, um, a rich tapestry of emotions and feelings and uh, from which you, I think, are able to extract these things in the story. Um, Thank you. One thing that's clear early on is that your father enters you for, for a race. I think you're seven years old. The Fodderstack 10K, is, is that how you pronounce it? Fodderstack um, 10K Classic. That becomes, uh, that becomes uh, a long-running family um, ritual. Yeah. At seven years old, you didn't know what you were getting into, but uh, here you are many, many years later. How did that start? Because I feel like you just described your dad as not really being like an athlete, like in the traditional sense. And then here he is, he's just like, Hey guys, you want to do a 10K? Well, yeah, this is, this is one of my favorite parts of the book because it really is that sort of origin story for running. And, um, you know, my sister and I, my, Meg and I were visiting my dad's farm in Virginia and he was always like looking for fun things for us to do. And we didn't visit that often. Like, I think I did some sort of like rough calculation in the book um, and we probably visited four times a year for like five or six days on average, which when you add it up is like such a paltry amount. Um, and divorce was so different back then, you know, like we lived three or four states away. And, but anyway, so when we would visit, we try, you know, he always liked to have some special things for us to do or, um, and he just threw this idea out as a lark. I mean, I think it was probably the second annual rate running of this race. And it was a local race. His buddies, I think, were putting it on. He was, I think, you know, he later would volunteer at the race, you know, holding the stopwatch when they had stopwatches and like, you know, and so it was just a local thing. And um, honestly, he probably just wanted us to have something to do for three or four hours on a Saturday morning when otherwise he'd be like, what do I do with these girls? So he never, um, it was never his idea. He was not going to run the race. And he made that clear from the outset. And my sister and I, like now later I think about it, I'm like, that is so funny that he, you know, he just set us off on this race, the two of us alone, I mean, with the rest of the field. But at the time it made total sense because my, you know, I had never seen my dad run. Like I had never run. I had never run. Like I was a really active kid and I was, as I mentioned, was always outside playing, riding my bike, but like probably the farthest I'd run was like the 600 yard dash at, at elementary school. You know, my dad was like, he was not an athlete as I mentioned. And so he was like, well, I'm gonna be at the finish line taking photos when you come in. 
And this seemed like the most normal thing in the world. My dad was a photographer. He was going to be there. He was like, I'm going to capture your triumphant finish. Those were his words. <laughs> and so we're like, cool. And, you know, part of it is when you're seven and you don't see your dad that often, at least me being the younger daughter, I'm the big, like, oh, I want to please and show off to my dad. And my sister was like, what? She was not that into the idea, but we both did it. And, you know, it started with a bang, literally. And we took off and there was probably a lot of like very hopeful early sprinting, you know, the way that kids do when yeah. they just take off and you're like, wait. And then all of a sudden the realization that we had many miles to go, not that I had any idea what six miles meant, none. And so we finally make it to the finish, probably dead last. And there's my dad waiting to, you know, take our photo and running across that line, like just sealed in me for the rest of my life, the fact that I was a runner, not because I did well, I did, you know, we finished last, but that experience was such a gift in that I was from the start, I separated my result from the experience or the feeling and the feeling crossing the finish line when you thought like you know two miles earlier that you would never make it like you your seven-year-old mind could never imagine making it and then you do make it it's this it is this triumph and it never it didn't matter that we'd come in last and so I think from that moment that sort of locked in me that feeling of that of accomplishment is not connected to result and that was a total accident. You know, my dad was never like, let's set out and have this experience where you become a runner and you get that runner's high. And, or, you know, it was just like, what do we do for three hours? I would, I, as you mentioned, I went on and we would go back every year and run that race. Again, just more as like a fun family tradition, my sister and I, we did get faster. We started winning our age groups. And, but that was also never why we ran was to like get the cup, you know, the pottery cup. Uh, maybe sometimes, but it was more just like, this is when we ran and it was this funny kind of gag thing that we did. And so in that way, running was my own personal thing. Like it wasn't, I didn't go and join my cross country team or my track team, though I could have. And I've had some regrets over the years, like, wow, I wonder what it would have been like if I had, how, you know, how good could I have been? But it was more like running just got to be my thing. It sounded like you didn't do it because your sister was doing it and you didn't want to be a me too. That is totally why, right? Like, and as kids and siblings have such interesting dynamics and my sister was older. She was also six feet tall. So she was just like, if, if I wanted to do running and she did running, like there was no way I could ever compete with her. And so in my childish logic, I was like, she can have running like on this team's. And I'm just going to do running my way, which turned out to be a really great thing because, you know, in my 40s, I'm still running my way. Is she still running also? She is. She took a, you know, a long break from it. And, but now she does half marathons. She's mostly a road runner. She lives in California where it's like completely flat. So she just, she has lots of great roads, but yeah, we, we have had our own stories with running. But if, if you'd have asked me when I was like 10 or 11, my sister was going to be the runner and the writer. You know, she had a typewriter. She was, she was sort of going to be the professional writer. She was working on a trilogy. So I had to find my own ways to do it without competing. And in the end, I ended up being the runner and the writer, you know, and she, she has an MBA. So it's just funny how life works out. 
Like, yeah. And, and I was a kid that you don't attach to those stories. It sort of worked out in the end. <laughs> so actually at one point, um, you say that you were obsessed with, um, as a Canadian legend, Terry Fox. Oh yeah. So how did that happen? Because I, you were living in the U S and, and you know, in the seventies, it's not like you have social media where all the news gets everywhere. No, but you know, you have time magazine and like we had time magazine and it came every week and my stepdad, I think subscribed. I think he was on the cover and it just like burned in my brain. And then, you know, you have the nightly news or 60 minutes. Like we watch 60 minutes every Sunday night with my stepdad and mom. And so th- I think that's where I got, where I knew about Terry, but it was like this very, um, searing memory that I have. He was running across the country. I think that was probably my first exposure to like ultra, ultra distance. Though, of course, it didn't have that name back then, you know, and, and had no name. It was just what he was doing. But yeah, I, um, it was just through traditional news outlets. What a great story, though. Yeah, he's, um, we have a teammate of ours. Well, he doesn't really run with us so much anymore, but, um, but he's every year he'll do the Terry Fox run. He's got Terry Fox tattooed on his, um, on his calf. Like he, he's a very big Terry Fox. Um, there's, uh, I, I've met a few people that have been like super inspired by Terry Fox over the years. Well, and also like you asked, like I, I am dual citizenship with Canada. So I, my mother's Canadian. And we spend our summers in Ontario. And that's where I was all growing up as a child in the summer. And so I think that just naturally, like things Canadian filtered into my world in a way they might not have for, you know, my friend who lived down the street in New Jersey. That's neat. (laughs) So your father's diagnosed with um, quite a vicious uh, cancer, it would seem. Uh, He doesn't suffer very long under under that. It's a short short illness that he has, but... That must have been, as a, from the daughter's point of view, quite a harrowing experience. And you hear a, a story in the book of you being called back to his, his house because they don't think he's going to make it through the night. Yeah. And you and your sister Meg, we should, we should mention her name. So when she listens to the podcast, she doesn't yeah. go, oh, why was I called the sister all the way through? <laughs> yeah, Meg. I don't know. Hey, Meg. Hey, love Meg. you. <laughs> Just lightening the mood while I'm talking about the death of your father a bit. Yeah. That's quite a, um, a harrowing story. Um, certainly it had me reliving, you know, the situation I had with my father. I was very distant in a different country when my oh. father was terminally ill. So uh, I identified very strongly with it and because it was so superbly written. Did you have any after effects from that or did you feel that you did everything that you could? Or? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, it's interesting because everyone loses a parent, right? I mean, nearly everyone loses a parent. And so it's universal, but like you only lose your parent once or twice in your life, if that makes sense. And so it's profound on a personal level. And, and I was really surprised by how um, hard it hit me. Not because I wasn't close, as I've mentioned, I was extremely close to my father, but I was used to living apart. I'd lived apart from him my whole life. So I had this idea that maybe, you know, his death wouldn't hit me that hard. This was before he was diagnosed. Like if I had to even comprehend it, you know, as a, someone in my twenties and thirties, like it, I wouldn't have realized that it would, would hit me so hard. And, 
um, you know, my mother's still alive. So he was my first parent that I lost. And um, as you mentioned, it was very quick. And I had just had a baby. So it was like this weird um, convergence of like life and hope and new life and then very rapid decline. And, and I was kind of like, if you're on this trajectory, one's going up and one's going down, like I was kind of caught right in the middle. And I was able to go back and forth quite a few times when he was sick. There wasn't much to be done except just to be with him and help him and really help my stepmother. And so, but I was very grateful for that time. And, and I do feel like I was completely present and in this heightened state of awareness and kind of awakeness um, to life when I was back there with him. And, and I describe this in the book, like I talk about that flow state that you get when you're running and it's that hyper awareness and time takes on a different dimension. It either goes faster or slower. And, and honestly, that being with my dad when he was dying was a kind of strange flow state. And um, I think that's what inspired me to start writing about it at the time was that I'd never experienced like being witness to someone's death, imminent death is, is a beautiful, it's very tragic and heartbreaking, but it's this very beautiful um, thing to witness. And as someone is making that passage and reflecting on his life. And so I do feel that I was really as present I, as I could be. Of course, I wish I could have gone back more. And at the time, you know, I had the new baby and then I had my two-year-old at home with my husband and my dad, you know, while he was still sort of more coherent was like always shooing me back home. Like you need to be home with your family and not because he didn't want me, but he was a very modest person. And he felt that like, you know, why was everyone lavishing all this attention on him and, and be with your people? And I felt very torn and, and it was echoes of sort of how I'd felt as a child torn between my two families. And so I think if there's one thing is that I could have gone back more times, but the times that I was there and was with my father, I feel that I was really there. And that um, I think was where the seeds for this book were planted was that state of, of just um, hyper awareness and, and presence. It seems also like that time, it seems like in that period of time, he, I guess you guys talked about things that you didn't mm -hmm. talk about before. Um, and I guess, I, I don't know if you feel like that would ruin part of the story. So you can talk about that or not. But he also, um, he also had this project of like, cataloging all his photos and his journals. And you talk about that and how he didn't get to finish. And, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and he, he died before he finished. And so I, w I wonder, like, he, he kind of told you guys to continue his work, but did he really elaborate on that? Or did he kind of just say that? And then, um, you know, maybe this book is sort of your way of like, yeah. putting the story together. Well, that's such a good, I'm so glad you brought that in, because that is such an important piece of it. And that I'm aware of in my subconscious, but to really see how those two are connected. Yes, like I knew my dad, he was always very upfront that he had this project. And it was like, he spoke about it like capital P project. And he spent most of his retirement, which was many, many years after he left um, National Geographic, was cataloging and digitizing and editing his photos. And 
honestly, it became kind of this like intense labor of love that was sort of frustrating as his daughter. Cause I was like, dad, come out to New Mexico and visit or let's hang out. Or, you know, he's like, he was so um, diligent and to, with his project that he gave it so much of his attention. And there was part of me that was like, live in the world, not in your photographs. And, but what I didn't understand then was that he was really working on his own memoir. And he would never have named it that. He didn't ever call it that. He, he was a fantastic writer. And we often talked about writing, he and I. And we talked about fiction. And I knew he, you know, in his secret life, wished he could be a fiction writer. And um, so I knew he loved to write, but I, he never said, like, I'm working on a, a, a memoir, a photo-driven memoir. But what I learned is after he died, and literally the night he died, I went down to his office in the basement, and I write about this in the book, and I, I found all his materials. And so, you know, letters, and of course, we knew about the photographs. Those were his career's work. So we knew he'd been working on this incredible catalog of of images, but what I didn't know existed were all the letters and the journals and the notebooks like I had kept and everything was just there organized. It was like when he left his office for the last time, probably like a month before he died, right? He couldn't go down there anymore. He tidied up and, and everything was labeled and organized. So there weren't any secrets. And that's one of his greatest gifts, I think, was he was so forthcoming and I think you asked earlier, like, did I put, leave anything out of the book? And I think part of the reason where I learned to be so forthcoming was really from my father. And he was forthcoming about the great stuff and also some of the choices that he made that were difficult or selfish or that he later regretted. And so to see it all there was overwhelming. And I couldn't go through it all as I write in the book in one sitting, especially not, you know, the day he died. And it took me several years. And that's part of the narrative of the book is finding these materials that he'd left and going, I had to go through it at my own pace. And it was quite scattershot, which ended up being sort of magical because I would find these things just when I seemed to need them. And it was like, my dad was somewhere out there in the ether, you know, like, revealing these things to me. And so I do feel that the book on a subconscious level is, is me finishing, I can't even say it's finishing his story. His story would have been completely different. And maybe someday I'll put that book together for him using his writings and his images. I would love to do that. My story is so different, but I do feel that it in some ways completes what he had tried to do in that the book I do include you know, just a handful of his photographs, which I feel grateful, like are out in the world. But um, yeah, there's a sense that he couldn't finish what he was doing. So I had to start what I wanted to do. I'd like to sort of intercede a little bit to just mention one of the people who I think is a hidden hero in the book. Not obvious, but um, clearly for me, a hero. And Liz is smiling because she knows what I'm talking about. And, and that's your partner, Steve. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Um, you get into a situation where you don't know it, but you're in some degree postpartum depression or, or blues after, yeah. after hormone uh, attack after um, your second baby. And uh, then you have a grief that, again, you can't, you can't put a name on, but it just flows, flows over you with respect to the loss of your father. And then the whole thing mixes up and you go 
to put the scientific words on it, a bit crazy mm -hmm. in terms of um, thinking that you're dying. Yeah. You start consulting a world record number of healers, whether they're <laughs> legitimate, legitimate or not. Um, and then you find running as a, as a solace and escape, and then you start running. So you're sort of running to get away from or to get somewhere else away from all of this. And you're going a bit crazy and leaving two small children and this Steve, your, your partner. And it just seems that he says the right things at the right time and takes on the workload and tolerates your craziness mm -hmm. and kind of sees you through. I, th I think you probably have a one in a million there. <laughs> I just heard him walk in too. He just picked up our girls at school. There so, you go. He's even doing yeah. that while you're podcasting with us. Ma major shout out to Steve. I did, like, there's a scene in the book when my dad is dying. And um, he, I didn't know it then, but he probably had about 10 days left to live. And um, it's Thanksgiving and we're there. And um, I decided to stay on a few extra days to be with him because I feel that the time is short. And I wanted to consult one last doctor to make sure that we'd like turned over every stone. And my dad was humoring me because he knew he was ready and I wasn't. And so anyway, I stay on and in, in that scene, Steve is taking um, Pippa, our older daughter, back to New Mexico. And I'm, of course, the baby is breastfeeding. She's with me. And they're driving down the driveway. And my dad, who always would always see us off, you know, and like wave till you're out of sight, literally like the driveway was a quarter mile or half a mile long. And when my sister and I were teenagers driving away, like as long as you could see dad in the rear view, you were waving. And so we're out there waving my husband and daughter off. And my dad just turns to me and he says, you know, Steve is a very good man. You made the right choice and I'm so proud of you. And it was just such a gift for him to say that. I know that, right? But to hear it confirmed by someone who had made different choices as a husband and a father um, was really meaningful. And, and Steve is really how he comes off in the book. He is so calm and like deep within like he's very much just his own person and so he's not needing a lot of like external validation whereas i'm sort of up, more up and down he's just this steady eddie and he did does always know the right thing to say most of the time it was just as i trained him and i write about this in the book i trained him to say like everything's going to be all, all right so that when I was at the height of my anxiety, and I really was like, I did think that I was dying of something different every week. And I will say that's, you use the word crazy, like it's actually quite normal. Like, and I didn't know this then, but when you're in grief to take on the pain of that, the person that you lost, and that grief is a physical manifestation. So it felt like aches in my body. And because I am a natural storyteller and kind of that sleuth, mentality that I had since I was a kid, like I was always trying to figure out like, why does my elbow hurt? And, you know, my imagination is a friend to me as a writer, but when you're in a grief state or an anxiety state, it becomes a liability. So I was making up these, in, in, you know, very fantastical scenarios, like I must have this kind of cancer or I have this or, and so um, really the only thing Steve could say in those moments was just like, it's going to be all right everything's going to be okay. Even though like, honestly, when you get down to it, that too is a lie, right? Because we know life is, is nothing but, you know, constant change. 
but it was, it was what I needed. And he gave me the freedom to go and run and do what I needed to do. That said, like we've always, that's always been our marriage is we have given each other the freedom to pursue our own adventures and interests. Um, and so it's just in keeping with, with our relationship, but yeah, he, he's quite incredible and, um, but would never like need to take the praise for it. If you know what I mean. So shout out to Steve then. Time shout out to Steve. <laughs> Yes. Steve, if you're listening to the podcast, you owe me 20 bucks. Send it to me. <laughs> exactly. Now let's talk about my mother. That would please her. Now. <laughs> oh, well, actually, you know, I, I kind of like your mother because she just seems to be, you know, in the 70s, um, because I don't know, like I was born in, in 80 and I remember growing up like you didn't see very many divorced um, families. Right. Uh, or that's how it seemed, you know, I, I I could be completely wrong, but that was kind of my interpretation growing up was, um, you know, it was not the norm. And so I imagine in the seventies, it must've been a little bit, a little bit like that too. And so she, she was divorced, but yet she was, she just seemed like so positive about everything. And that is really who she is. Like she's the ultimate can do person fixes her own toilet and like has all the skills and has like completely upbeat attitude um, and really lives that way. Like it's not fake. There's times when you're like, okay, but there's so much under the surface that we need to talk about that is hard. She just operates from that level of optimism and like that glass is half full, which I certainly believe I'm an optimist, even though I have that side that can go toward that imaginative sort of storytelling fear. I inherited my mother's like ultimately believing things work out, you know? And, and so she, yeah, she really was this pillar of strength and optimism and like her saying, you know, when I would mope around, not that I did very often cause I was really like a doer like she is, but you know, it's just get busy and do something. And that was kind of her cure all, you know, now I think about it. I'm like, now I just get busy and run like 50 miles or a hundred miles. And you know, my mom sort of like, can't understand that and it scares her and she you know has some trepidation about how if it's healthy you know but I do want to point it back and be like that's you know like it's coming straight from her is like just get busy and do something run you know whether that's running or writing and whatnot so um so since you know you busy uh, you got busy and decided to start running ultra marathons it seems like it just kind of happened because in the book it was like uh you guys you and steve were um were writing your new year's resolution and and both of you wrote the same thing to do a 50 mile ultra race 50k oh 50k right that's true i have 50 miles in my head because somebody's trying to convince me to do 50 (laughs) miles (laughs) Uh, which yeah is one of those distances I can't even wrap my head around. But yes, 50k, and uh, and and then it just seems to sort of like go from there. It was like, were you still running sometimes? And so this was like a progression because in the book it just seems like oh no, yeah, it's a total progression. So the progression is like for about two years I was just running for survival, and I was running to get through that grief, and not even really running away from the anxiety. 
because, but what would happen when I would run and I would go out and that was the only time that I could get moved beyond those worried thoughts or that thought of like, oh my God, my elbow hurts. Like I have a tumor is like when I was running. And it's because that running has that repetitive sort of meditative state. You know, initially I would start out and have every fear and everything on my to-do list and all the mother's guilt of like, I can't leave my children. Like, and, but after like 20 or 25 minutes, you become that very rhythmic. It's like, a, you're just a body moving and I could move beyond my thoughts. And so I could leave those worries behind. It wasn't so much that I was like trying to run away from them as much as running into the peaceful meditative state that I needed. When I came back, the worries were there, you know, um, but the running was building this confidence in me that was like, well, I can't, I must not have terminal cancer if I can run 25 or 30 miles and feel good about it. You know, so running was both the cure and like proof of the cure. So I was running all that time, not training. Like, of course it wasn't training. It was just survival and living. Um, but kind of when I popped out of that anxiety, that most acute anxiety after about 18 months was when I then had enough perspective and sort of equanimity in me to be like, wow, I was running far. Like, I wonder what more I'm capable of. So it was a really natural progression to think about doing, you know, now thinking about applying what I had just experienced for two years in a very like organic, personal way into like, I wonder how I would do in a race. And it wasn't out of the blue because I've worked for outside for, you know, a decade and covered ultra runners. I had one of my favorite parts of the book is when I meet Dean Carnassus, the ultra runner, best-selling author of Ultraman, Ultra Marathon Man and um, interviewed him for a story for outside. And as part of that, like accidentally ran my first marathon because I was interviewing him. And so Dean at the time, he was so, um, it, his enthusiasm for running was so infectious that I just kept running with him. And my plan was to run like six miles or something. And I ended up running the whole distance and grilling him as a, as a good reporter would do on like how he does it. You know, that was 2006 and he, he gave me his secret, which was like, you're stronger than you think you are and you can go farther than you think you can. And that was 2006. And I must have filed that away in my brain, you know, in like the part of the brain that just like holds these things and is working on it, it was like, you know, my subconscious must have been sort of like, you know, working with that, but it wasn't until 2012 that his words kind of came back to me and I was like, oh, I think I'm going to try this. And I love that story because it shows like when you're really tuned into your intuition, you're on a different schedule. Like it's not that I saw Dean and was like, I'm signing up tomorrow for an ultra. I just trusted that like that experience with Dean would take me somewhere and I didn't know where it would take me or how long it would take. And, you know, sure enough, six or seven years later when I needed it, his words came back and I was like, yeah, I'm going to sign up for this race. And the fact that Steve had the same resolution is completely, was just such weird coincidence because we hadn't really been talking about it. And Steve never makes New Year's resolutions, as you can probably guess. He's just like his own guy and he doesn't need resolutions. And, but we produced these things and they said the same thing. So I was like, we're doing it. And then it just it does take off in the way that ultra running does. When you do one, you're like, now what can I do? Like I did 
32 miles, can I do, you know, 50? And that's a very natural progression that I'm sure many people listening to can relate to. Yeah, I have somebody trying to convince me that 50K and then progressing to 50 miles is normal. And I'm having a hard time with that. That is a big leap. I remember thinking that. That leap from 50K to 50 miles seems like inconceivable. You really can do it. You just have to take your brain out of the equation and sort of trust your instincts and your body and your heart. Yeah, I really admire people like you that trust their instincts because I have to say I'm very much like a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. I used That's to cool. like my favorite dynamic used to be when the coach would fill out the spreadsheet and I would do what was on the spreadsheet. This was my the, my favorite dynamic and um it got me into like overtraining. So it it didn't work out for me in the end, but I I have a friend that's very much like she trains very hard. And then one day she'll just be like, you know what, today I cut my run short because like, I just feel like I need to do that today. And, and I just, I so admire that. And I feel like you're that kind of person. Oh my God. I feel like we need to have this mind meld because when you just said <laughs> dream of spreadsheets, like my nightmare is spreadsheets. And I, for most of my running career, I've been self-coach, but I've the last like year and a half, I've been working with an amazing coach and he uses spreadsheets. And if he's listening right now, he would laugh so hard because I literally have like an allergic reaction to filling in my fog. <laughs> I, I will do the work a thousand percent over, but filling in the log in the little lines. Oh my God, we are totally different people. I love that. Yeah, my coach, my coach, his name, his name was John. We had Google Docs. So yeah, you have to go and fill in. I'm like, how am I supposed to write in that little line? And I know they expand. But it's like, you see the line, I can't fit it all in. I can't fit all the emotions <laughs> running into like a grid. <laughs> That's why I wrote a book. <laughs> it, it seems in the book that, uh, that it's, you almost work in reverse. The, the less you focus on the end, and the more you focus on being in the moment, yes. in the flow state that you talk about, the better it goes for you. Yes. It's fu- it was fascinating reading about your 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 friend who's the meditation guru or expert natalie natalie goldberg incredible author herself and after you after you win your do you win your first ultra she says something and i've been wanting to ask you this question but she says something like i knew you would win because you didn't really care about winning yeah what on earth does that mean Oh, it me- it means everything. I mean, it really captures kind of how I've always run and how I aspire to run now that I have had success. It is exactly what you said is working in reverse, like letting go of the result you want to be present to the process of training and be and showing up every day for the experience and the feeling of it. And so when Natalie said that, I hadn't understood that like, you know, I knew I'd been training for this 50K. I knew I had no idea what 50K would be like. The longest I'd run was that marathon with Dean Carnassus. I figured like six more miles, like I can always walk it in. I, you know, my husband and I are always outdoors. We're hiking all the time. I was like, I can hike six miles on top of 26. And so I knew I'd been working hard, but I didn't know and Natalie sort of showed that to me that I had been doing like r- the really important work of not fixating on the end. Like never once had I said like, I think I'm going to do well, or I want to do well. That was never the goal. The goal was to have the experience to finish. And after she said that, I realized that that's kind of how 
I've always approached running and it works and it's been working for me since and not every race. I mean, there's certainly races and I write about this in the book, like one race at the North Face 50 mile endurance challenge in California. I got really caught up in like, how was I going to do and stack up against all these pro runners? And I had one of the worst races because it was so externally driven. It was like, you know, what's everyone else doing versus like being really in myself and like, how do I feel? And, you know, when I let go of time and pace and I can really be in that intuitive flow state, I run so much freer and stronger. And so I just, I do want to say it's not about not having goals because I think having goals and dreams are so important. And especially right now we're in this pandemic where so much is unclear and it's so good to have that, those aspirations but it's a matter of like holding them lightly and not like squeezing them so hard that I'm going to go and win Leadville, right? And like just squeeze all the joy out of the training. No, it's like hold Leadville very lightly and then be really show up every day with a whole heart to train for it. Back to the flow state, because it, it seemed like as you kept going, you sort of figured it out. It almost seemed like you figured out how to enter that flow state, like seem like at will, you know, because it seems like your first races were sort of hit and miss. And then the other races, as you moved on, it seemed like then you were always in flow state. Do you feel like you have it kind of figured out? Yeah. I I would say like the early races, I was in flow state because I knew less. I didn't know it was a flow state. Well, maybe I felt that way, but like I had fewer expectations for myself as a runner and I was less attached to results. And then you start winning or doing really well, or like, depending where you are in the, in the spectrum, like if you're setting like PRs, like then your ego really likes that and you get attached to that. And then it's really hard to walk yourself back. So it becomes this almost a daily practice for me in staying on my center line with why I run. And for me, it's about, expression and creativity and being connected to nature and being strong in my body and the winning and the competing can be like the celebration or sort of the cherry on top. But the reason I do it is for what I just, you know, is that feeling of freedom and creativity It is really like my muse running in the mountains. And so what I mostly figured out as I went is that it's a fine line and that if I don't work at it almost daily through meditation and writing and kind of turning off my watch and also tuning out social media to what other people are doing, if I don't do those things, I get way pulled out of myself and then I don't run well and I'm running for kind of other people's reasons or for my ego So yeah, what I learned is flow is like always out there for us, but we have to um, kind of prime ourselves for it. And I have things that I do, you know, on a daily basis that help me center and be more present and in the moment, because I think that's just what flow is. It's being in the moment, like Zen would call it being present or being awake. And um, that's really what flow is, where you tune out, where you let go of a certain result and you're fully embodied in the process. So maybe do you have like like a tip? <laughs> yeah, I do have a tip. I mean, I have lots, but you don't have to give us all your secrets, but you know, like a couple tips. I would dive I in fact I'm working on my next book which I like jokingly say is like divulging every secret I have. Not that anyone really cares, but it is like I am very like You'd be I, surprised. I will give all the tips, but you know, really it's like 
for me, tuning out my watch and really using it sparingly, like, because most of the time you don't really need to know your pace in trail running, especially that's so terrain dependent or altitude dependent, you know, whether there's a lot of vertical or if it's flat or technical. And so pace is sort of irrelevant. Like I'll use my watch maybe in like the month leading up to the race, just to sort of see where I am. But I'm very, I'm very strategic because if I realize if I check in too much with my watch, I get pulled out of the feeling and into numbers. And, and I sort of have this whole Zen idea of time, which is like, why are we trying to race time? Like our time on earth, it's like, I don't want time to go faster or slower. I just want to be in sync with time. And so for me, that means just letting go of my metrics. Um, that's one thing. I found that sitting meditation, it does not have to be like a Zen or spiritual thing as much as just sitting on your bottom in like, you could do a chair. I, you know, I sit on a cushion outside in the gardens, like little ratty cushion and just being quiet for you know, five minutes, even if you start with three, my stamina for sitting is nothing compared to what I can run, but sitting has helped me be quiet in myself and tune out all that outer chatter of like, what are people doing? What races should you do? Like, what are the big races? What are sponsors wanting? And tune that out and just tune into that intuitive voice. So you were talking about like not having that strong intuitive voice sitting and you don't even have to call it meditation. It could just be stillness can help you develop that. And, and it doesn't take much like a couple minutes every day and you can build up a little bit, but that's really key. Like I find if I am pulled out of myself, um, whether it's by racing or competition or whatnot, like if I come back to sitting, then it helps me remember like, oh, right. The reason I run is because I write when I run and I want to run till I'm 90 years old and I want to like be in the mountains free. And the races are very like low on the list. That's good. We'll have to add that to our preparation. It doesn't have to be intimidating. I don't want people to think like it has to be this very um, fancy or involved thing. And also there's this idea that when you meditate or you sit, like you have to have no thoughts in your head. And if you have thoughts, you're not doing it right. And that's absolutely not true. Like the thoughts are going to come. And the trick is you think of them like clouds. You just see them coming and then let them pass and try not to to grip onto them, right? Or attach a story to it. And it really translates well to running because as, as we know, and you guys probably know, like when you're running, if you develop like a sensation, like in your hamstring or your ankle, and it's really tempting to make a story around it and be like, oh my God, I've tweaked my ankle or I'm at mile two of a marathon. Like I'm never going to make it. But if you can, you know, meditation comes in handy because you're just, you can apply that same principle of like, oh, there's that thought about my ankle. Well, I'm just going to let that go and I'll revisit it in like five or six miles. If my ankle's still bothering me, then I'll think about it. And so it has many applications, um, not just to like sitting on your cushion. It's actually really good because in the book, you had mentioned that like it was your nightmare to be sitting, yeah. sitting still. And, um, and so you had avoided like certain medication, meditation classes where you yeah. have to be like just sitting. And then you had decided finally to, to do it later on. And like, once you were really tired from an ultra, I think yeah. was when you decided to take your first class. And I, it, so it kind of gives hope for the rest of us. It means that, you know, if you can do it, um, maybe I could do it. <laughs> and you don't, again, you don't have to have any kind of like 
spiritual component to it. I happen to be quite curious about Zen because I love that concept of time and like that we're all connected. And so I've found that helpful to me, but like the sitting can be completely like a secular exercise in just quieting yourself. And it is really true that after you run an ultra or any kind of race, like that's a really good time to sit because <laughs> you're tired. <laughs> We, we did a podcast um, a few weeks ago with um, Matt Fitzgerald called The Comeback Quotient, which was really focusing about the mentality and the mental approach. And one of the things we realized is we spend hours and hours and dozens and dozens of hours training our bodies and no hours whatsoever training the mentality and yes. our minds and our mindsets and position that our head is in um, in terms of consciousness. Yes. Matt's thing was different, but this is also touching on that, the fact that as, as runners trying to be the best that we can be, there's probably more scope in terms of gap that we could fill yeah. around the mentality and the mental approach. Um, that's why Liz is asking you the question, and that's why we're interested. I mean, that's a lot of sort of what this next book that I'm writing is about, because, and, and it kind of picks up where this one left off, but I had a really traumatic wilderness accident on um, a river. We were whitewater rafting in Idaho in 2016, and we do that, you know, we're big river people, and it was this fluke accident, and I broke my leg on the river, and it was the first day of a six-day trip, and I stayed on the river which I didn't know it was broken, but that begins that mental training of like, okay, what are some of the scenarios? How am I going to stay on the river with a broken or with a very compromised leg? And, and what then unfolded was when I got back to Santa Fe and learned it was broken and learned I had to have surgery. And then the orthopedist just said, you know, I would never run again if I were you. That set up this mental challenge where I had used my body to really heal me from my father's grief in running home. And now I couldn't use my body. Like my body could not carry me through this process. I had to use my mind and really even my heart. And so what the things I learned after that accident about positive imagery and visualization and were so profound. And you realize like you have a choice in how you see your situation. And like for just a sh really quick example is like, I would never, I never call my leg my broken leg. I called it, it was my healing leg. That's such a minor thing, but it was like, it made a difference when I wrote about it in my notebook or when I thought about it. Broken leg implies broken, fractured, like not working. Healing is like, I'm on the path. And really that was instrumental. I mean, that was, I ran and won Leadville two years after that happened, after my doctor was like, you shouldn't run again. And I credit so much of that recovery to these mental habits that I formed that I didn't like no one taught me them. It was just coming from within of like, I can't write about myself as broken if I want to be whole. And so kind of writing and imagining myself into the life I wanted. And I had, you know, I wrote it again, because I always keep my notebooks. I wrote filled pages of what it would be like to run my first hundred mile race. I didn't even really know I wanted to run a hundred miles. And I was picturing running Hard Rock 100, which is a dream of mine. But the scenes I wrote imagining myself and feeling myself running that were replicated almost to a T at my Leadville experience. And so that manifestation of what we want. Um, so that's just sort of a taste of kind of what, where my, my meditation and my mindfulness and my mindset training has gone since 
since I, you know, the end of running home. That's really interesting. It's, it's a bit of a side note, but like years ago, I read this book and I can't even, I can't remember the title, but it was about a rower. I think she may have been a Canadian rower and she, she was destined for the Olympics and she, um, she had a rowing accident where like two boats collided and her, her leg was just like completely ripped her, the muscles on her leg. And it was, I'm going to say eight weeks before the Olympics, just because I can't remember exactly, but it was really close. And um, the book was kind of like her journey of, I mean, she made like a miraculous recovery and she ended up winning gold, I believe, or a medal in the Olympics. And um, a lot of the book was about her and how she would imagine imagine herself um a uh, healing and imagining the tissues healing and she yes. would and when she when she went rowing like she she realized that her usual um technique didn't work because she didn't have the power in that leg and so she she visualized her way around that and so her technique kind of changed but with the same result like i mean it's just it's just amazing it kind of makes you think like wow like your brain can really be your ally in in some way well we think as athletes especially that our body is our strongest tool but like actually it's really our minds and our minds can take us places that if we just were relying on our bodies, like we wouldn't get there on our own. And so that, yeah, that's so interesting about Matt's book. I keep seeing things about it and I want to pick it up because his sounds like a more researched and scientific and mine is the more like literary narrative. But um, yeah, it's fascinating. It's, it's, it was a real lesson in like, oh wait, we can control you know, and my anxiety that I write about in running home was just runaway, spiraling out of control, and I didn't have control. And so to change the narrative, like, you know, instead of focusing on all the things I was scared of, like, visualize what I want, you know, and I, I learned that, but it's a lesson I still have to practice. Even though I'm healed, COVID has been a challenging experience, right? Because there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of collective anxiety, and like about health and wellness. And and I find myself kind of getting back into old patterns now and then. It's almost like I'm writing this book now to remember and to remind myself that I have these tools, that instead of being nervous about COVID, write about like how my body is strong and healthy. And But yeah, we, you know, we really can control the narrative or what we tell ourselves. One of the things I did early in the COVID piece was take a writing, a little writing course, mm-hmm. uh, wild writing, where you do 15 minutes of splurge writing on a subject uh, each day under guidance and i found that um very very helpful wait what kind of writing what wild writing it was called oh writing oh writing wild i writing writing no, oh, writing cool. writing i love wild writing um and i, I would recommend that to people as, as therapy in some ways i think that's what i do in my notebooks just under a different name like before we got on this call you know i have these chapters of my book on my computer but i just felt like i wanted to write in my notebook and I just you know I just started and it took I started one place and I ended up in a completely different place and I was like oh I guess that was really inside of me wanting to come out and so that is powerful that does your new book have a name yet yeah I'm tentatively titled running free very good that's logical (laughs) sounds perfect for a podcast so yeah Logical. That is like not the, the adjective <laughs> to describe myself, but I like that. I like that you gave it logic. <laughs> we'll put you on the podcast review for 2021. So Perfect. No pressure, but get right in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
you think if your dad had been a runner like like you, who was athletic and was able to say run in a flow state in the what what are the mountains called that you the Blue you Ridge so Mountain? Much? Yeah, the, the Blue Ridge. The, the Atal no the Atalaya oh, Mountains. Let's oh, see yeah. in Santa Fe. My mountain. In New Mexico, if he was able to do that, do you think it would have changed him? Wow, that's no one's asked me that. That's such a great question. I think so. I think that might have maybe connected him more deeply to sort of his own inner creativity and drive. Though I say that, and it's possible that he really did explore all the reasons that he kind of moved away from making pictures and more toward helping others, you know, make the best pictures. And, and so maybe the regret, and I write about this too, is maybe the regret is mine that he chose a different path. But I think based on some of the writings that I found and some of which I include in the book that he was unresolved. And, and so it's possible that running in the mountains in the flow state would have connected him more deeply to that part of him. Though I will say like his flow state, and I write about this too, was beyond photography was like very different, but simple things like mowing the lawn. Like he, he had 27 acre farm. And so mowing the lawn for him was like driving the tractor. And I remember being like, oh my God, he could never get away because he was either working on his photographs or he was doing his, you know, he's like, I've got to mow. It, it bugged me. But now in hindsight, I realized that that was probably his thing, that that may have been like his meditative state or his commitment that he made that his daily practice or weekly practice. And so he had other outlets and he, he was also really big into kayaking and and bicycling. So he had these other outlets where I think he went into that state where he was really in touch with his inner self. It just looked different than mine. Towards the end of the book, it seems like uh, you've followed in your father's footsteps in that um, you registered Pippa for her first 10K. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And along with your stepmom, Leslie, who yeah. also ended up running. So you guys were like three generations and um, are they still running? Oh, yeah. Was Pippa but, traumatized or? or no, it was so funny because the way that whole thing happened in very much in keeping with how I live was like, it just came up. And one day I was talking to my stepmom. She's like, you know, I'm training for the fodder stack. And she was 70. Um, she's very competitive, though also not really a runner. Had run maybe 10 years earlier. Very active horsewoman, like always out walking, you know, on, with her horses. But to hear her, she just kind of pulled out of nowhere that she'd been training. And secretly, not so secretly, she wanted to win her age group. And she was very determined. And her enthusiasm for it just went right into me so that I thought well, right away, like, I'm going to run that. I'm going to come back. And I mentioned it to Pippa and she's like, mommy, I want to go. And it was so natural. You know, and in hindsight, you're like, well, I didn't know it was going to be the end of the book, right? It does provide that perfect bookend. None of that was premeditated. It was just like, Leslie said that I was so into her idea for her. And I was like, I'm going to come back. I hadn't been back to the farm in a little while. My, you know, since my dad had died and, um, and then mentioning it to Pippa. So that was, that came from her wanting to do it. And then, yeah, the day of the race, I was so nervous for her. 
And I wonder like if my dad was nervous for us when he sent us out on the road alone and Pippa was not alone. I, I was running the race and I sort of made the game time decision that I was going to race the race because she was walking. I mean, she was running with uh, Leslie is one of her best friends named Jeff and his daughter. So Pippa had like a, a posse, unlike my sister and I, that we were just like on <laughs> our own. But I was really nervous for Pippa and I'm like, oh, I hope it's not a bad experience and I hope she likes it. And as I write about, like I finished, I won the, the race and then I doubled back to find Pippa and Barney and Jeff and, uh, and to be able to run in with them at Pippa's the same age. Maybe she was, you know, she was seven or maybe six that I was, was so moving. Again, though, I wasn't thinking like, here's the end of the book, but, right? I was just living it. And I was like, I feel like I'm her and she's me. And it was this re- weird time melt. So it worked out perfectly. But the way I do things, like if I don't feel it on the inside, like I have a hard time doing it. And I just really felt it. Like that's what we were meant to do. And so she does run. She doesn't, um, she started running with me again. Um, I'm careful not to push it on them or to have expectations because that was again this gift that my dad gave me was not having any expectations he didn't care if I ever ran again it was just more like this interesting day that we had together parenting is so different now it's easy to kind of voice things on our kids and pressure and so I'm really open Um, I, I want them to move every day and to have a relationship with their bodies and by extension their minds because we do that when we move but it doesn't matter what they do as long as they're outside and, and also connected to nature, like that's important as to, to be raising these young stewards who can help with the natural environment. But yeah. And my stepmom, she um, later had some injuries. So she, but she, she's not running, but she's walking. She's a crazy British walker. So she's out there every day walking. <laughs> Great. And what about, what about Macy? She really reminds me of myself. She has that really like natural compact runners kind of um, stride and just, she has incredible mental strength. I tell her all the time that she's the strongest person in the family because she's already in that mindset of telling herself good stories and good outcomes. And we do crazy long hikes with them, like up in the mountains, 12, 14 miles at, you know, at 10,000 feet elevation and have for a long time. They're such game girls, but Maisie is just, she's a force. Like she doesn't get down. And if she does, she turns it around. So she's really sort of the Zen master. I feel like I can learn learn a lot from Maisie about mindset. Or maybe your mom skipped a generation. It's like her spirit. She's just, yeah, she's really strong on the inside, which is where it counts. You know what I mean? That's a great, that's a great bookend for the, uh, for the, for the book and also probably a good bookend for the chat and for the podcast. Do you want to uh, just give your summary thoughts on the book? So I, I thought it was really well written. Um, it was, it just flowed so well. It was almost like sometimes hard to put down because it was almost like you always knew there was going to be something else coming and it was so much information, but at the same time, it was so well put together. It, it just seemed like, I, I mean, I don't know how you put all those, all those things together in that way. It, it's, it's like tons of little stories, little tidbits, but meshed together in like to what into one big story. And they're all relevant. They're all relevant to the story. And I just found that it was, um, you know, we're going to say it's a running book because we're a running book podcast and we like running books. Um, <laughs> but really it's, 
it's basically a story about being human. And, and I think our listeners are very much into the running portion of it. But you know, this book could easily be picked up by anybody and, and anybody could enjoy it, because it's very, very emotional. So um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Those are such kind words. From my perspective, I would say, you know, um, you take us on a journey. And um, once you get involved, it's easy to go on that journey. I actually had sort of some scenarios where this would say, how are you going with the book? And I would say, well, I had to put it down because it was sad. You know, the portion of it was sad. And I could only, only, could only absorb so much sadness. And I had to put the book down. And similarly, once you started running up in the mountains and were describing the flow states and I often say um, my sport is actually soccer. It's my sport. My religion is is running. You know, it's a spirit. It's a spiritual. It's a spiritual like type it. of experience. I think you sort of describe it in the flow state and the feelings. You go on that journey as well. So you take us with you. You know, the sights, the sounds, the feelings. So it's it's a superbly written book from that point of view. And you know, I would encourage people to go on that journey, take their own journey, get buy the book read it, go on their own journey. Any discussion that we're having only skims lightly over it uh, a little bit, although it's been great to have, to have the conversations. Typically as well, I found that you know, while, while reading your story, I was thinking about my role as a parent towards my children and how I behaved with them and the birth of them and how I felt about that. I've lost both my parents uh, in the past and I, I sort of relived how I dealt with that with my siblings. Not only do you read your story, but it sets you thinking about your own stories as well. Something that we didn't touch on is was the photographs in the book. Mm. It's quite an eclectic sort of mix. I think the photographs are almost chosen for well, there's some historical relevance. So you use children and your father as a young mm -hmm. man, and but there are also some photographs that are just countryside or landscape or um, some clouds or something like that. And I think the selection of photographs. I mean, I'd be interested to know why you chose some of them, but sort of set the mood, set the tone, right. um, as well as being a little bit historical. And I think that's quite nice. It would have been almost nice to have color photographs. We read the paperback, so we saw black and white. But, yeah, um, talk, to my, talk to Random House about yeah. color yeah. is hard to do. But yeah, no, that I'm glad you mentioned that's one of my favorite things was being able to include just a smattering of photographs. And they really were sort of in the, in the National Geographic style of my father's, many of them were documentary in terms of trying to capture a moment or a time or to give a visual of what I was talking about. And then others were sort of after he died and I didn't have his photos after he died, right? Of, of the time after, then they became my photos and, and some of them were trying to capture um, the feeling of, of expansive possibility that you feel when you run. and. Um, so yeah, it was a mix, but that, that was one of my deepest pleasures was to be able to include and to choose his pictures. I mean, he has hundreds of thousands, so um, it, was, it was tough choosing. And I, th I think you get the feeling of, you certainly get the strong feeling of homage um, yeah. to your father uh, looking at the photographs. A final word on the book from, from my point of view in terms of summary, I think it does a great job of describing to us how wonderful it is to run, mm. how beautiful it feels and you know I understand that you understand that Liz understands that and probably in all of our listeners kind of understand that feeling well you you capture that well I think and ultimately how running can heal you yeah 
you know, it could, you. Be, it could be the answer to a lot of things. And, and just to Liz's point earlier too, like running is the way I healed myself and it, and it made sense given sort of my life and, and how I'd always been a runner. But really, I think, and I've said this to many um, audiences where there aren't overwhelming number of runners that that you really could take every time I say running and you know cross it out and put your own thing in there and the message and the theme of the book is the same um, and so it does you know I never really did I never conceived of it as a running book right it was a memoir and a, a personal story and so um, yeah I think I think that it transcends the sport um, and, and running is just the vehicle for transformation in the book. If anyone's listening who isn't a runner or knows people who aren't runners, like the book, as Liz so beautifully said, is really a book about being alive and being a, a daughter and a or a child and a parent and um, and just a human trying to find their way forward. I think also um, a lot of mothers will probably recognize, you know, when you said because. When, when you talk about that guilt you felt, you'd be going out running, doing your thing that you liked, um, but yeah. feeling guilty that you're not at home with your kids yeah. and your family. And I think it, it is something that I've heard from, you know, our teammates that are that are parents. They're like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I feel bad. I, I leave my child with my husband at home uh, doing homework, uh, just the two of them, you know, I should be there. And I think a lot of moms have that feeling. And so, you know, whatever the activity is that they're taking a break from their kids to go do this activity, like, like you said, it could, it's like cross out running and insert here. It's so important though. And I found that as my parenting journey has progressed, I realize now that it's so fundamental and essential, not only for my happiness, but for the balance in our family and to be models for my children and and especially now when we live in this world of such uncertainty and worry that that joy whatever your way of finding joy is not frivolous it's actually like essential and to find time in your day that's just what I would leave people with is like I call it sort of stealing time from your day but like find little pockets of time in your day where you can do the thing that you love that moves you it doesn't have to be running. It doesn't have to be a long time and you don't have to be good at it or have any goals, but do the thing literally that moves you, that gets you out the door, out off the off your chair. And that that is sort of a radical act of healing, I think, and, and peace giving. That's a good final message. Do you have somewhere specific that uh, you'd like people to go if they want to get a copy of your book? Oh, thanks for asking, Alan. I would um, just ask people to support their local bookstores. Um, okay. Every you know, wherever you live, um, if you have a local shop, bookstores are so vital to our communities and um, it's easy to just go online. My book is certainly available online and press order and get it tomorrow. <laughs> but the bookstores, you know, are kind of the lifeblood of our creative communities. So if they don't have it, they'll be more than happy to order it for you. I'm a big reader and I've been ordering all the books I've been on my reading list from my local store and they do curbside. We're in sort of a lockdown here. Um, so um, I would encourage everyone to support their local bookstores. It's also available as an audible, as an audiobook. You don't get the photographs, but you get me narrating the book. People like who listen while they run have said they've loved that. And, and so that's an option too. That's on audible. 
the book itself is in paperback. It was just put out in paperback by Random House. So um, that that's new in the last couple of months. And if people want to find out more about you, I assume your um, your website, katiearnold.net, would be the place to go? That's a great place. Also, I'm a little bit more active on Instagram and Twitter, specifically Instagram. I'm sort of posting kind of about running and life and, and, and writing on my Instagram, which is at Katie Arnold. And um, I also do, I'm starting back up again. I lead running and writing retreats. And these, this is for runners and writers or runners and humans at any path on their, at any point on their running path. You don't have to be fast or a trail runner. You don't have to do distance. And people say, well, I'm not a real writer. Can I come? We all have stories to tell. As Alan was mentioning with the wild writing, that's kind of what we do on these retreats. We are using writing to sort of tap into that intuitive voice. And we put these retreats on hold, obviously, for, for COVID, and, um, but we've got one coming up in um, the fall in New Mexico. So that, that's on my website or on social media. Th those are sort of, we, talk, we explore ways and habits in our daily lives to kind of put ourselves in that flow state that we can use, whether it's in our writing, our running, our professional lives, our parenting, whatnot. Okay, fabulous. Well, thanks for spending all that time with us. Uh, we've really appreciated it. It's been such fun talking to you. Oh, you guys asked the best questions. I love that. There were some real, we really dug in, and I, I so appreciate that level of care and, and kind of attention to the book. It really means a lot. Um, so thank you for listening to another episode of Running Book Reviews. A big thanks uh, to Katie for reaching out and sending us review copies of the book and for spending time with us today. You can read some of Katie's articles and read more about her on her website, uh, katiearnold.net. As she mentioned, she can be found on Twitter or Instagram. And you can leave us feedback about the podcast or you can also suggest other books that you'd like us to review. You can reach us on um, Facebook or Instagram. We're just running book reviews or Twitter. We are reviews underscore running. 